Amen. Good morning, church family. Uh, just if you don't know me, my name's Rob. I'm the senior pastor here, and I have the privilege of opening the scriptures with you this morning. As uh, here at Osterville Baptist, we believe that the Bible is God's word, and we make our way through the scriptures in a systematic fashion uh, to better understand what God would say to us in his word. So if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you do not have a copy of the Bible with you, we will have the scriptures on the screen for you. And uh, we're going to begin by reading our passage. So we're picking up at verse 14 of 2 Timothy 2. So Paul writes to Timothy, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearer. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Amen. That is God's word. And uh, as we think about this passage, we're going to start with Pastor James coming up here and have a little object lesson for you. Now, you might not know this about Pastor James, but he wears pretty strong prescription lenses. Is that true, James? That is true. Okay, uh, do you know how strong your prescription is off the top of your uh, head? Like a negative six in both eyes. Okay. It's pretty bad. I don't know what that means, but I'm it, it, it means it's, it's bad. Strong. That's what it means. <laughs> Maybe we'll demonstrate it. Why don't you take your glasses off, look there at the back screen, and tell me what time it is right now. <laughs> uh, time for me to get glasses. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So if you're looking at the back screen, can you even le read the title of the series right now? I cannot. Okay, what about the back of the room? Can you make out any faces? Mm -mm. You, you can tell Blobs. there's people? I, I can tell that there's something. Okay, and then yeah. towards the front of the church, what do you see? Uh, I see people-shaped blobs. It's, okay. You know, I can tell whoever's up here is wearing something kind of green. <laughs> so here's what we're learning, though, right? Uh, James, he can't see clearly, but he can see. He sees blurs, he sees colors, 
Um, he would probably be able to walk around a room and not like run into things, but we don't want him operating heavy machinery. Nope. Uh, I don't want James driving down the road without his glasses on. In nope. fact, is that even legal for you to do Absolutely that? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, James. That's all we need. So, you know, when we look at our text this morning, we're going to be looking at Paul having a conversation with Timothy where he talks about the faithful leader uh, needing to wear the right lens as they operate in their ministry and their walk with Jesus and in their personal lives. You know, many people are walking around with lenses on. It's the way they look at the world. It's their worldview, if you will. So as they look at the world, they, they filter the world through that lens, whether or not it's, say, for example, what they've just recently read on social media, and that colors their thinking. But more often than not, it runs a little deeper. Uh, you filter the world through how you view money, whether or not you're overly dependent on money, you love money, or you want approval from others, your neighbors, you're constantly thinking, what are they thinking of me? So that is how a person views the world, and Paul's going to say to Timothy, listen, that's no way to live. There's no reason that you need to walk around just seeing blobs and colors. In fact, it's dangerous to operate in the important moral matters of life when you're not wearing the right set of lenses. So now we get into the text, and Paul's going to tell us, choose the right lenses. Now, those first uh, several verses, verses 14 to 18, I'm not going to read them to you again, but I want you to see that in those verses, Paul's contrasting two different types of leaders. All right, on the one hand, you have Timothy in verse four, or 15, and he, he tells him that you need to be a good worker. You need to be approved. And now you look at this, the contrast, which is those individuals in verses 17 and 18, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are bad workers. Now, even as you're reading that, Paul doesn't want you to read that and say, oh, that Hymenaeus and Philetus, they're pretty bad guys, and Timothy's a pretty good guy. No, he wants you to start asking yourself a question. What kind of leader do you wish to be like? And as you think about the theme of this series, he's also saying to you, what kind of leaders do you want to replicate with your life? Friends, if you get nothing so far this year as we've been talking about leadership, leadership is simply advanced discipleship. That's what it is, okay? It's advanced discipleship. It's moving beyond the realm of discipleship where I'm just worried about growing myself personally to allowing myself to being used by God to influence others with my gifts and talents that God has given me. So what kind of leader do you want to be like? Well, you have to ask the question then, what's the difference between the good worker and the bad worker? They're wearing different lenses. And Paul's saying to Timothy, the approved worker deciphers everything about their world through the lens of God's word. So if you want to be like James with glasses, then you walk around and you filter everything through the lens of God's word. Don't operate the heavy matters of life without the scriptures in mind. Now, when you look at verse 15, he says that we do this by rightly handling the word. 
The, the literal translation for that in the Greek is talking about cutting straight. So if you were to go into this analogy that he's using here, it's, it's a road builder who creates a road or a highway or freeway from point A to point B in the straightest direction possible. You're not sending people on a, a swirthy path to get to who knows where. You're cutting straight for them. You're making it simple, direct, approachable for them. Now, don't you guys wish that the road builders on Cape Cod would have thought that way? I don't know about you. I grew up in the Midwest in Chicago. It was a grid system. Someone says to me, hey, you want to come over to my house? Absolutely. Where do you live? I know immediately how to get to that person's house. I know the street and the avenue and how they intersect. And maybe I don't know the shortest way there, but I am going to get there at some point. When I moved here, I quickly learned that man does not live without GPS alone, okay? You have to have a GPS to get anywhere. When we first move into our neighborhood, um, we're over in the Nye region. I mean, I'll tell you, I can't, well, I will tell you, I can tell you a lot of people have come back there and they've been very confused. And you know why? Because I think the road planners took a handful of spaghetti noodles and threw it onto a map and said, that's how we're going to build this neighborhood. Now, what is interesting about this little digression here is it's actually painting a picture for us of what false teaching does. Instead of creating a path for you from point A to point B, which is clear, which is something that you can obtain in your mind and understand, the false teacher takes you on a swervy road. It's circuitous. It's dangerous talk. Why is it dangerous? Well, Paul says it's dangerous on the one hand because that kind of talk leaves people with more questions than biblical answers. So it destroys faith. But it's also dangerous because it doesn't, it's the kind of talk that leads a person questioning whether or not they should do what the Bible says. So not only does it destroy faith, but it also destroys faithfulness. In verse 16, Paul calls it irreverent babble. He says that it leads people to more and more ungodliness. He also says in verse 17 that it spreads like gangrene. So it's not just like little sidebar conversations that are harmless. No, what he's saying is when you don't wear your lenses, when you're filtering the world not through the truth of God's word, but you're saying in a Bible study or something like that, you know, I know the Bible says this, but this is what I think about this. I don't care what you think about it. We need to know what God thinks about it. That's the only way to get people from point A to point B. Otherwise, we're just following this swervy road that leads to nowhere. Now, this is just what these individuals are doing in the text, but I want you to notice something important as Paul deals with people who are creating the swervy roads. He is hard on ideas, but he always holds out hope for people. Write that one down. That's something every Christian needs to remember. You can be hard on ideas, but you should always hold out hope for people. That, that individual, Hymenaeus, was already mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Paul said that he was off kilter, and he's talking about him still. 
which means that Paul's still thinking about this guy, maybe praying for this guy, hoping that Hymenaeus will come back to the truth. But all along, he's still hard on the ideas. Now, why do we need to be hard on ideas? Well, that's because ideas have consequences. They do. Imagine if instead of preaching the real gospel at this church, instead of telling people that Jesus is the way, the only way, the truth, and the life, that the only way that you can enter into a right relationship with God is by trusting that Jesus died in your place, I started preaching a common gospel that is all over the place in our culture, the gospel that people are basically good. Now, what would be the consequences if we preached that gospel? Well, there would be dramatic consequences. We would all become a, a bunch of rich, young rulers who approach Jesus in our arrogance and say, Lord, I've basically followed all of your rules, but you know, what one more little thing do I need to do to get me over the line? Well, if you're rightly looking at the message of salvation, there's not one more little thing we do to get us over the line. No, we need to jump on the bloodied and scarred back of Jesus and have him carry us over the line. That's the gospel. Well, in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus, their ideas were dangerous too. They were teaching that essentially the bodily resurrection, so this is a second coming events when Jesus calls the dead in Christ and they get a new physical body, they were essentially saying that's already happened and it's not physical, it's spiritual. They were mingling a very common ideology in this day called Gnosticism with biblical Christianity, which makes it not biblical anymore, right? They were taking their wrong thoughts and filtering God's word with their wrong thoughts instead of allowing God's word to filter their wrong thoughts. Now, what happens with this belief system? Well, instead of anticipating the bodily resurrection, which produces so much hope for us as we wait in anticipation of Jesus' return, but at the same time requires patience, we, didn't get, we don't get all of those glorious realities right now. They were jumping the gun. They are saying all of those benefits that you can have in the resurrection are now. All of its health, all of its wealth, all of its privileges, all of its power. And here's the thing with false teaching. False teaching always wants to jump the gun. If there's something that takes delayed gratification to get to, the false teacher comes along and says you can have it now. For example, those ads you see about that magic pill that will make you lose weight without work and without eating right. It's a false message. I promise you, when you drop the $89 to get those pills, they will not work. You'll be dissatisfied. And the same thing is true with a false gospel like this that says you can have all the wealth, you can have all these things, now, that's not what God's word says. So Paul's message to Timothy is the same message to us. Believer, are you going to wear your scriptural glasses? Are you going to wear them as you're making moral decisions in life? Are you going to wear them as you're raising your kids and you're talking to your kids about 
the truth? Are you going to wear those scriptural glasses as you go about into your workplace and, and serving within the community? You see, the temptation is there constantly to take the glasses off and say, it's fine. Tonight, I'm just going to take off those lenses and do media. Tonight, I'm going to take off the lenses because, you know, people are saying that this cultural issue that the Bible has a strong point about is no longer relevant. And I don't want to create any waves in our society, so let me just take off the lenses for this particular matter. You know what happens when you take your glasses off? You crash. You crash. And not only do you hurt yourself, but when you drive without glasses, you can also hurt others. You see, Paul says that this is what happened with Hymenaeus and Philetus. They were upsetting the faith of some. Now, here's a spiritual principle that I want you guys to remember. Spiritual leaders know that personal choices also impact the community. They always do. When you choose to take off your glasses, it hurts others. Now, let's move into the next section. And in this next session, we're going to see that God's truth necessarily changes us. You see, Paul is telling us in this, uh, this next section a pretty big point. Now, I've created an analogy for you of wearing uh, glasses, and, and basically the purpose of that analogy was just to create a contrast between filtering the world through God's wisdom or human reason, okay? But when you really take that analogy to the full extreme, it doesn't really hold up with what the Scripture teaches us about the believer. It's not quite accurate enough. You see, when you trusted Christ, the new covenant took root in your heart. And in Jeremiah 20, or 31, God promised this of those who would have the new covenant. He said, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So you're not wearing a set of glasses. In the new covenant, God has given you LASIK eye surgery, okay? He has fundamentally changed how you perceive the world to where you can now love what he loves and want what he wants. So Paul's going to talk about that reality in verses 19 to 21. It's the reality of the believer undergoing the process called sanctification. Or if you look over at our mission statement, it's that second point, transformation, which we talk about all the time. Now here's something I want you to understand about your salvation. There is no salvation apart from sanctification. You can't get saved and not then enter into the process of growing to look more and more like Jesus degree by degree. It's so true of the Scriptures. You will have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will work upon you. And we'll see this as we look at verse 19 first. Listen to that one. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, there's a lot to unpack here. Let's begin with those two statements. That God's found, uh, firm foundation stands bearing this seal. Now, the foundation that Paul's talking about is the church. 
We are the firm foundation. You might be asking yourself the question, well, how's the church to remain pure? How does it know what's true when there's all of these false things constantly coming in and out of the doors of the church? Because, let's just be honest, we live in a world where there's all kinds of competing worldviews all the time. Well, Paul says that the foundation is firm and it's sealed. So sealed is the idea of that modern signature that we write on things to authenticate, to guarantee that it comes to you genuine. So God is saying, I own the church, and I will ensure that the church remains true, and I will fill the church with faithful leaders. And we see this in two ways. First, Paul says the Lord knows those who are his. So that's talking about God's sovereign control. He knows who comes into the church. He can distinguish between what is true and what is false. Now that language actually takes us back to the book of Numbers chapter 16. If you know that story, that is the time in Moses' life when Korah leads a rebellion of priests against Aaron and Moses Korah was looking at the dynamics of the priestly system, and he resented the fact that God had given him a lesser, in his mind, a lesser position within the priestly system than Moses and Aaron were going to get. So they confront them, and they say, we deserve all the power and the prestige that you guys are getting. Who's to say that you guys deserve those things? Well, if you look at the Septuagint translation of Numbers 16.5, The Lord knows those who are his. And so what they do is they set up a contest and they separate Moses from this rebellious group and God vindicates Moses. He stands up for his reputation and the text says the earth swallowed Korah and those who were in rebellion with him. Now, as a believer... There is sovereign comfort in the words, the Lord knows those who are his. How do you get to be his? Well, the scripture says that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. You've trusted him. And if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, even when the ultimate fires of judgment fall upon the earth or the cosmos is burnt to a cinder, the Lord will know you. He will preserve you. He will protect you. He will sustain you. Jesus used the same imagery when he talked about being the good shepherd. Do you remember John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15? I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for my sheep. Now, friends... That's an incredible passage. I hope you do not miss the depths of what Jesus is saying there about the knowledge of God for you. Listen to what one commentator says about it. So deep is God's knowledge of his own that it can only be explained in the analogy of the mutual knowledge of the Holy Trinity. 
God knows you like God knows, God the Father knows, God the Son, and God the Son knows the Holy Spirit. This eternal relationship with infinite knowledge into one another, that's how God knows you. It's incredible to think about. I I could never be lost upon God if he knows me that way. Let's look at the second phrase. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, this is dealing with God's expectations for the ones that he knows. He wants us to live holy lives. And we'll see that more deeply in the analogy in verses 20 and 21. Take a look at that. It says, Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good Work. Now, what is he getting at here? Well, think about all that it requires to operate a household. All of the containers, the pots and pans, if we're just even thinking about the kitchen, the appliances, all of the vessels involved with running a household. Now, as you think about your kitchen, there are certain things that we have in the kitchen just for the sake of the beauty of those things. For example, our fine china. You know, the dollar store plates could get the job done. But these ones, these plates are special. They're beautiful. Some appliances we have because they're very useful to us. They take time and they greatly reduce the amount of time spent to get something done. But then then there are those items that we obtain over the years, probably because we were watching late night TV and then this infomercial came on. And as you were watching the infomercial, they just kept hooking you more and more as you were watching. I mean, they were chopping potatoes in such a way that you'd never seen in all your life. And you thought to yourself, I've got to have that thing. So much so that you pick up the phone and you get your credit card out because it's only $19.99. And then all of a sudden this thing comes in and you're so excited to use it only to realize that its only usefulness is for taking up space in your garage and collecting dust. Believer, how would you like to be before God? Would you like to be viewed as beautiful and useful? Or would you like to be like that 1999 job? Well, if you want to be useful, Paul says that God can use you. He can. But the only way he can use us is if we are pursuing holiness. I think that is such an encouraging thought, though, because listen to what he said in verse 21. If anyone cleanses himself, so this means that anyone can pursue holiness. It doesn't matter if you've come to know the Lord later in life or if you've done a a series of things that you regret in your past or even if you think to yourself, I don't see how God could use me. I don't feel very useful. Well, the Bible says this, there's not a super class of Christians. 
God takes every believer and he indwells every believer with the Holy Spirit. So if it's saying if anyone, it means this, that any Christian can give over more and more control to the Holy Spirit and God can use you. In fact, I want you to look at verse 21 and we're going to see the simple process of sanctification, how it works. First, we see that you're sanctified. That's that moment when God sets you apart. You've trusted Christ. Now you are one of his own. Then you are useful. God has a noble purpose for you. Now, I want you to see something, though, that the imagery stresses for us. The imagery stresses that it's all to do with the master's authority. He decides how we are best used. So never resent God's special purpose for you. Never covet someone else's purpose and wish that that was your purpose. God needs all of the utensils in the household. All of them make the house operate well. And lastly, you see that you're ready for good works. This is the visible outworking of the holy and useful life. This is that place where people can start seeing and they come up to you and they say, you know what? You're different. What's happened in your life? Well, you know what you need to tell them? The Holy Spirit happened. That's why I'm different. Now, as we move into the last verses, I want us to take a look at a real-world tension as Paul is having this conversation about sanctification with Timothy. And I'm going to frame it with a quote from A.W. Tozer. Tozer said this, Plain horse sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it makes no difference to God either. And it is an easily observable fact that for countless numbers of persons, the change from no faith to faith makes no actual difference in the life. Now, why does that happen? Why is it that some people come to faith and it seems like nothing happened? Well, I can tell you one thing. It's not God's fault. It's not. God always does his part. He has indwelled us with the Holy Spirit. He's left us with his holy word. He puts us in the local church. God willing, we're coming to the local church, which is our spiritual greenhouse. So if anything in this process is breaking down, it's because we're not doing our part. Well, how do we do our part? Well, first, I want you to see that we have to grow to become holy leaders. Emphasis on the word holy. Holy leaders pursue holiness. Now look at verse 22. Paul says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, if you don't find yourself in the category of youthful any longer, I don't want you to check out on this verse. Remember, Paul's writing to Timothy, but we're reading over Timothy's shoulder, okay? So youthful passions, like being impulsive and, and following his passions, were things that maybe Timothy would be susceptible to. But let me tell you, you've got things you're susceptible to, too. Just like I do. Just like we all do. Now notice how active pursuing holiness is. 
It involves fleeing and pursuing. Running away from things that are spiritually dangerous to us and running toward the things that are spiritually good for us. Now, over the years as a pastor, one thing that I've observed is that a lot of Christians have lost their sense of navigation. They get confused as to where they are supposed to be running. I watch Christians that are running towards the things that are tempting, and they don't run towards the things that are good for them because they're too busy for it. Well, church, what does that say about us? Parent, what does it say to our kids if they constantly see us running toward our devices and our streaming apps and alcohol? And they don't see us running towards things that are really good for us, like church attendance and reading our Bible daily and getting into spiritual life and community with other believers where I can actually practice love with others. What does it say to my neighbor if, as Tozer said, no faith to faith has made no actual difference in my life? Well, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything here for you today. It says a lot. A lot. Now, I think one of the reasons that we find ourselves running in the wrong direction is because holiness is hard. And baton passers get this. It's hard. It's hard to deny your sins. It's hard also sometimes to do the right thing, to deny myself and to take up my cross and follow him. Those things are incredibly hard. So what happens? We try and we fail. We try and we fail. We try and then we give up. But I want you to listen to this quote that I read recently as you consider your choices. It says, marriage is hard. Divorce is hard. Choose your hard. Obesity is hard. Being fit is hard. Choose your hard. Being in debt is hard. Being financially disciplined is hard. Choose your hard. Communication is hard. Not, communication, not communicating is hard. Choose your hard. Life will never be easy. It will always be hard, but we can choose our hard. Choose wisely. And if Paul was to like remake this quote, he would have said, holiness is hard, but disobeying God is also hard. Choose your hard. But here's the thing. Yes, it is hard, but Paul is giving us the secret in this text on how to work smarter, not harder, okay? And how do you work smarter and not harder? Well, you work smarter and not harder by running away from temptation toward righteousness. You see what I'm saying here? So the more time you actively apply your energy toward running to righteousness, you're spending less time spending energy fleeing from temptation, and you'll watch as the Holy Spirit makes a difference in your life and changes you from the inside out to where you're wanting to make the right decisions. 
Well, God wishes for his holy leaders also to be gracious leaders. And that is a conversation he has with Timothy as he tells him to contend for the truth. Because Paul knows that as we do church together, that there are going to be people who come through the doors of the church and they're going to be quoting all kinds of fashionable statements that are out there today. So the question is, is how should a spiritual leader approach those who aren't wearing the lenses of scriptures as they come through the doors? Well, listen again to verses 23 through 26. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Just think about it like this. If growing in holiness is hard for those of us who have had LASIK eye surgery, imagine what it's like for those who are walking around seeing only blobs and colors and that and what and the other. It's not easy. And so if that's the truth, then the spiritual leader must handle the truth wisely. How do we handle the truth wisely? Well, on one end, we never give up a ground, an inch of the ground of the truth. We never say that what is wrong is now right and what is right is now wrong. We don't do that. We always hold to the truth. Remember, you can be hard on ideas. But on the other end of the spectrum, we also have to have hope for people. Do you see what Paul's saying in this passage when it comes to dealing with people? Or as my grandmother used to say, you catch far more flies with honey than with vinegar. So as we're uh, talking with people, think of it like this. You don't advance the gospel well through harsh statements. You just don't. Even when you know that something is right, it doesn't always mean that right now is necessarily the right time to say it. You can be gentle. You can be patient with the truth. You can be kind with it. That's how people are one to Christ. Well, as we close this down, I want to ask a a final question as we process this. How do we walk the delicate balance that Paul is getting at in this text? Did you hear that this requires some finesse to walk like this? You know, we're pursuing holiness, we're holding fast to the truth, but at the same time, we're also loving people who are confused. How do I do that? Well, Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, said that the best way to do that is to model our lives after our master, Jesus. I mean, think about the model of Jesus. He modeled love He modeled humility. He he modeled steadfastness in the face of trials. He he modeled obeying the Father. He, He holds all of the virtues of holiness in perfect alignment with one another. On one end, uh, Jesus is always gentle, but he was never soft. He was always pure, but he was never prudish. He was full of mercy, but never at the expense of justice. He would always tell the truth, but he never withheld grace. 
He was obedient. He obeyed his parents. He, he followed the law of God. He forgave his enemies. He never lusted. He never coveted. He never lied. And all that he did, he perfectly obeyed the first and second commandment. He loved God with all that he was, and he loved his neighbor as himself. I know, like when we look at the life of Jesus, many of us say, well, that's the perfect Son of God. I can't do that. But here's the thing. That's why the Holy Spirit wants you to, degree by degree, look like Him. He's the perfect example. He's the perfect model. Well, how do I grow to look more like Him? I participate in the process of sanctification with the Holy Spirit. He does His part. I do my part. Don't you want to look like Jesus? I do. I want to walk like him. I want to talk like him. I want people, when they have interactions with me, to walk away and say, you know what? I know no one's perfect, but that guy is getting close. And when I stand before him in glory, I desperately want to be as close to the final version that God intends me to be as I can possibly be. Church, do you want those things? You should. And the Holy Spirit is in work, at work in you right now to produce those things if you will but hold to the truth and walk wisely with it. Let's pray that God will continue that work, shall we? Lord, I am just so grateful for your holy word. And as we look at the scriptures this morning, we come to understand that your Holy Spirit does so much for us, in us, and through us. And particularly by using the word, as we rightly handle the word, the Spirit degree by degree changes us into holy leaders, into gracious leaders. I pray for each one here. The second, in, the second core part of our mission statement here is transformation. And Lord, we don't want to have a single Sunday at Osterville Baptist Church where transformation isn't happening. I believe today, Lord, you're doing things in this, mit, this church, in our midst. I believe that every single person who heard the word today, Lord, is having a, a spiritual conversation with you in their heart, understanding that there is something in their life that you are looking to claim control of. Not because you're domineering God, but because you're good. Because you know what's best for us. And you want what's best for us. So I pray your best for each one here. May they become that special, limited edition version of Jesus. Their truest self, their best self, and their most fulfilled self. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.